The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark from the 13th chapter, beginning with the first verse. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all of these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder what that disciple of Jesus meant when he looked at the temple in Jerusalem and said, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. It is possible that he was truly impressed by the grandeur and the magnificence of this temple built with human hands and that he said these words with sincere awe and admiration. That is certainly the kind of response that King Herod would have wanted. According to the first century historian Josephus, Herod's grand reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem included retaining walls composed of stones cut by humans that were sometimes as big as 40 feet long. The temple itself occupied a platform twice as large as the Roman Forum and actually four times as large as the Athenian Acropolis. Herod reportedly used so much gold to cover the outside walls of the temple that anyone who gazed at them in bright sunlight could damage their eyes. So it wouldn't surprise me if the disciples' comments came from a place of awe and amazement, much like the feelings that we have when we see something that dazzles us perhaps even blinds us to a greater reality because we are so enthralled. When I hear the disciples' words in that way, then the whole story actually becomes a powerful message for me about idolatry. It becomes a story that challenges me to take an honest and perhaps even painful look at the worldly things that have captured my heart. Because as Jesus goes on to say, all of that will be reduced to rubble. Do you see these great buildings, he asks the disciple? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. In my own life, I can identify the massive stones of, of power and wealth and privilege and status that seem to be so firmly established in my favor throughout my lifetime. And so as I hear these words of Jesus, I have to address my own fears of losing them. 
of having all of that be reduced to rubble. But what about the hearers of this story who stand outside of those walls that are built with stones such as these? If you are one of them, I actually think that you share a closer kinship perhaps with the disciple who made the remark about the large stones and large buildings. Because in my heart of hearts, I think he did not say it out of a sense of awe and amazement. Because for Jews like him, the systems and structures of the world that that temple represented did not ever work in his favor. In their lifetime, Jews at that time of, of Jesus were a part of a country occupied by Rome. And it had been now for many decades and Roman occupiers were gaining more and more control over everything every year. And from reading the entire gospel story, we learned too that there was a powerful religious establishment often collaborating with Rome that kept people in their place. It is no wonder then that so many were drawn to an agent of change like Jesus. And in his first public address to people, Jesus said that he had come to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. The disciple in our story had obviously believed that because he had joined the company of followers that went all the way to Jerusalem with Jesus to stand up to power. But then when they got there, he stood outside those massive, dominant, seemingly unshakable walls and buildings of the temple, reconstructed by a king who was fully collaborative with the Roman Empire in their efforts to establish an eternal reign that would define for all time who had access to power and who did not. I may be wrong, but I think this disciple of Jesus made his remark with a tone of painful realism. When he said, what large stones and what large buildings, I think he was really saying, look at what we are up against. What chance do we possibly have? Things like this are permanent, just like the power that brought them into existence and just like the violence and the injustice that still rule the day. But Jesus was not going to let him or the other disciples stay in a place of despair. Like the prophet who used strong language and imagery in the book of Daniel in Hebrew scripture, Jesus now pulled back the curtain for his disciples to reveal something much bigger than what they were just seeing right there before their eyes. In the verses that follow, Jesus began by revealing the depth of suffering and brokenness in the world that is actually even still to come. Wars, rumors of wars, nation rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It is the kind of language that we identify as apocalyptic. And hearing all of that, it's easy to see why apocalyptic language in our thought is often associated with fear. But as I said at the beginning of worship, in the Bible, 
This kind of language ultimately is always about hope. In books like Daniel and the book of Revelation in the New Testament, and here now in this chapter of St. Mark's Gospel, apocalyptic language is meant to open the hearts and the minds of oppressed people to the possibility and to the promise that that's not the end. What you see right now is not the end because there is more to come. God is doing something new even now. If we have any uncertainty about that message, we can go to the last line of this gospel reading today when Jesus says that all of this suffering is actually the beginning of the birth pangs. What a radical image that is for anyone who wonders if the pain and the suffering in this world is just simply a preview of more to come and even of how the story ends. Even today, we may get that impression when we look at what's happening in the world around us. But Jesus reframes everything when he connects the pain and suffering to a process of birthing that is also happening. And as any woman who has given birth knows, once the birth pangs start, there is no turning back. And in the end, I think Jesus wants us all to know the same thing about his coming reign of justice and peace. I think he wants us to see it as a birthing process that has already begun and that nothing can turn back, nothing can prevent from happening. That's the hope of God's coming reign that flooded the heart of Jesus' own mother as she rejoiced in the days before his birth. In her song of praise, Mary sang, My soul proclaims your greatness, O God, and my spirit rejoices in you because you have cast the mighty down from their thrones and you have uplifted the humble of heart. For all of the Marys of the world today, including perhaps many of you who are listening, there is still in Mary's song this profound hope and it is hope for you along with Jesus' declaration that the massive stones of those temple, the temple there and of temples like that, will all be thrown down ultimately. But for you and for all of us, the birth pangs, as we know, are still very strong and very real. Because as Jesus also says, the powers of this world will continue to wage war always in an effort to stop this from happening. In his book called Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, John Philip Newell talks about this in one place where he talks about what he calls the shadow form of masculine power that is now fighting hard to hold on to its privileged place in the world. And when I read that, I thought specifically of heterosexual male power that strives to remain dominant. It has no ultimate future, however, says Newell. So in fear now, it is lashing out with unprecedented force. The same can be said, I think, of the fearful and desperate attempts by white people in America 
to keep systems and structures in place that have always worked in our favor. But this is not the deep spirit of this moment in time, Newell goes on to say. Something else is trying to be born, he says, just as the earth is forever pushing forth new life, so it is within the human soul. So we can and should be alert to where this is happening, even now, where new vision and new life is trying to be born among us. I take that as a message of hope for every one of us today, no matter how we identify with the disciple who says, what large stones and what large buildings. If in him the curtain is pulled back on our own idolatry, then we can face the inevitability of losing the idols that we cherish with a deep trust that something else is trying to be born within us, something that will actually bring us into new and abundant life and into new community with all of God's people. And if in this disciple, the curtain is pulled back on our own despair when we see what we are up against or our lack of hope for any real change in our lifetime, we can let our soul be joined to the soul force of Jesus and to the earth, as Newell says, which is forever pushing forth new life. Whatever the case, we can all trust that promise and we can take comfort in knowing that the birthing is always God's work, not ours. And as every mother knows, once the birth pangs start, there is no turning back. Thanks be to God. Amen.